Welcome to 7-Minute Torah. I'm Rabbi Micah Streifer. Here's how this podcast works. Each week we begin with about 7 to 10 minutes on the weekly parsha, hence the name 7-Minute Torah. You'll either hear me, or you'll hear me in conversation with a Jewish thought leader. After that, if you want to stick around, we often continue with a bonus interview where we talk about all things Jewish. Welcome, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. This is our first interview episode of the new season, and I have to say, today's conversation, one of my very favorites. I get to talk today with Dr. Mark Wachowski. He was my professor of Talmud and Jewish law back in rabbinical school. We're going to talk about Parshat Noach. Noach is the second portion in the Torah, and of course it tells the story of Noach, or Noah. It's one of those where a lot of people know the basic outline of the story. God decides to destroy all life on earth because, as it says, The earth had become corrupt and filled with lawlessness. God invites one person, Noah, and his family to build an ark and to gather specimens of every living thing on earth to save themselves and to save every species. Dr. Wachowski and I are going to talk about a somewhat lesser known aspect of this story, which is the seven Noahide laws. But I'll let him explain what that is. Dr. Mark Wachowski, welcome to 7-Minute Torah. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm honored to have you. Uh, so I'll introduce you a little bit now, and then we'll get to know you later after we talk Parsha. You are, at least until January 1st, the Solomon B. Freehoff Professor of Jewish Law and Practice at Hebrew Union College in Cincinnati. And I mentioned January 1st because I know your retirement is imminent, right? That's correct. That's correct. Congratulations on that. Hey, thank you. So in other words, teacher of Talmud and Halakha to generations of rabbis, including yours truly. And I just have to thank you belatedly because I know that between about 2005 and 2007, I pestered you pretty much every semester to do an independent study with me. And you very kindly put up with that. Yeah, you were a good student and uh, it was a pleasure. It was a pleasure. I do my best. Thank you. Mostly, as I recall. Maybe not all the time. Anyway. Yeah, that sounds about right. (laughs) So we're talking about Noah. And, you know, when we think about Noah, we often think of it as a kind of a cutesy story about people and animals on a boat. You know, they came on by twosies, twosies. But there's actually a lot going on here. If you really read deeply, this is a story about about morality. It's a story about human nature. It's a story, I think, about people's capacity for for good. And it's also a story about law. There are a series of laws that come into play as Noah is stepping off the boat. So maybe I can ask you to explain to us what's going on here. Right. Okay. So as you say, in between, well, in between the two big uh, stories, the narratives of this parasha, you've got the flood at the beginning, Uh, the story of the Ark and so forth, and then the Tower of Babel at the very end in chapter 11. In between these two things, as Noah, his sons, and all the animals are coming off the Ark, we we have a a covenantal moment, the covenant of the rainbow. Most all of us remember from from the story, oh yeah, the rainbow has something to do with Noah. Well, the rainbow is the sign of the covenant that God is making with humankind, Uh, as we get ready for our second start. Okay, first start didn't work so well. Let's do it again. 
And as part of this covenant ceremony, this covenant moment, just like the Sinai covenant that we're going to read about in the book of Exodus, the covenant between God and the people of Israel, this covenant between God and all humanity is expressed by way of laws. That is, there are certain instructions that God has. God communicates to the people, in this case, all the people of the earth, uh, some of God's expectations for what the world should be like from now on. Mm -hmm. So in chapter 9, you've got some laws, some legal material uh, having to do with uh, not eating the flesh of torn from a living animal, uh, laws concerning murder, uh, and, and so forth, the things that you're not supposed to do anymore. And it would appear that from this notion of a covenant being made by God with all of humankind, the rabbinic tradition, which really determines Judaism as, as the religious civilization as, that we know, the rabbinic tradition came up with I, this idea of the seven Noahide mitzvot, they call them. These are commandments or laws that God supposedly handed down to all of humanity after the flood. These are, number one, the requirement to establish courts of justice and a legal system. Mm -hmm. Number two, the prohibition of idolatry. Number three, the prohibition of gilui arayot, which means adultery and incest. Number four, blasphemy, the, the prohibition of, uh, of cursing God. Number five, murder, prohibition of murder. Number six, prohibition of robbery. And number seven, the prohibition against eating the flesh cut from a living animal. And these are laws that are at least according to the Torah, given to all humanity. And the question is, how do we know this? Because not all of these are mentioned there in Noah chapter and in Genesis chapter nine. So the rabbis in the Talmud, the, the Talmud asks, well, it asks the question, Minahani Milei, which is a, which is Aramaic for how do you know this? In other words, how do you know that that God gave these seven mitzvot to all of humanity? And the Talmud answers, well, we can learn this going all the way back to Parashat Bereshit, chapter 2 of Genesis. This doesn't have to do with Noah specifically. It has to do with Adam HaRishon, the first Adam, the first human being. God makes a covenant with Adam. And in the verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 16, where God is really talking about you know, the commandment of, you know, you can eat the fruit of this, you know, all the trees except this one, right? Which, of course, uh, is the one they eat. Yeah, of course, of course. Like, uh, you can do anything you want, but don't do that. Well, obviously, I'm going to do that if okay. you tell me that kind of thing. The, the rabbis, through a process of, there's no other way to describe it, tortured midrash. I mean, really forced interpretation, but very creative interpretation, learn all seven of the Noahide laws from that verse. It's an interesting institution, the, the very existence of it. It's actually a very powerful universalizing impulse that to say God has given laws, not just to us, because of course this is our book, right? This is the Torah, it's, mm -hmm. not, a, it's not a book of the world. Right. But to say that God has given laws not only to us, but to the entire world. There are certain expectations for humanity and there is the expectation of an ongoing relationship of a covenant between God and everybody on, on earth. Right. And Jewish authorities throughout the centuries have looked back upon this idea as a kind of, well, it's somewhat parallel to the idea of natural law that mm -hmm. we find in other legal systems. That is, 
you know, you got laws that are legislated by some identifiable source. Let's say it could be the king, it could be a legislature, it could be God handing down laws to you. Natural law is a term we use to describe laws that just, they exist because they have to exist. They exist because reason demands it. And this is what Rambam says in the Mishnah Torah, his great law code, Maimonides, when, when, when he describes the seven Noahide commandments, uh, he does not mention this, this tortured Midrash that, uh, that, that we find in the Talmud, this interpretation that, 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 that forces all of those laws into that verse from Genesis chapter 2, verse 16. He, he says, look, these laws, we know about them, first of all, because it's a tradition. We have it in a reliable tradition. It's been handed down to us. But secondly, because reason approves of them. One's da'at, one's capacity for rational thinking is inclined to accept these ideas. And what he seems to mean, at least this is how Rambam is read by later scholars, what he seems to mean is that society, human society and culture really cannot exist in the absence of certain minimal obligations we owe to each other. And in the case of the Noahide laws to God, it's interesting that two out of these seven laws, the prohibition of idolatry and the prohibition against blasphemy of cursing God, these are ritual commandments. These have to do with Bain Adam Lamakom, our relationship with God, and not so much our relationship with other people. Mm -hmm. uh, the rabbis are telling us that matters of the spirit have a minimal content, a content, along with matters of social and political life. There's just certain things you got to have, certain commitments you have to make in order for a, a society to work. So we might, in a modern context, we might then translate to the, that into the idea that societies have to have, first of all, basic moral requirements. You can't kill each other. You can't yeah. eat live animals. Mm -hmm. There have to be court systems. And also that there has to be some kind of common, some kind of, of common sense of purpose, right? We can't legislate blasphemy these days. And yet the idea yeah, that society must have a common sense of purpose I think mm -hmm. really is actually quite fundamental to living in a civilization together. Yeah, I mean, all civilizations have these things, and though you know, and and when some of these commitments weaken within a society, when they become frayed, when they begin to break down, well, then then you have the beginnings of social chaos. The the Jewish tradition says, unlike some other legal traditions, the Jewish tradition says that all of this actually comes from God, that these are mitzvot, these, these are instructions between God and the human race, as opposed to people simply sitting around and figuring these things out on their own, although we might be able to do that. But, but the Jewish tradition says, no, even if you can figure them out on your own, there is this element of revelation that is that, that God is present in this. Now, not all societies are going to make that commitment, but the notion that your society is based upon fundamental commitments that you as a community feel we have to make, that in their absence, there is no society. That, I think, is an idea that's pretty much common to, um, to all human cultures and civilizations. My thanks to Dr. Mark Wachowski for a really interesting conversation 
on a lesser known aspect of this week's Parsha. If you can, please stick around for the bonus interview. Among other things, we'll talk about Jewish authenticity and about the relationship between liberal Judaism and traditional Jewish law. Hey there, Rabbi Micah Streifer here. I want to invite you to continue the conversation in our new Facebook group. Just go to Facebook and search 7-Minute Torah Listen and Discuss. Then you can join the group and join the conversation. See you there. All right, we're back with a with a bonus interview. Dr. Wachowski, I wanted to talk a little more about, I guess, this issue around law and Judaism. I think people often read stories like Noah, as I said before, like stories. They're looking for morals. They're looking for lessons. There's There are songs and ditties. But Torah is very much about law. In fact, the rabbis view Torah as being very much about law. Do you think that's lost to a lot of modern Jews? Do you think that, you know, in we, we often declare ourselves, especially in liberal Judaism, non-halakhic. Do you think that, do you think we're missing this very ancient legal tradition when we focus most of all on the stories in the Torah? Well, very, very good question. Look, we, we reform, reform Jews like to think of ourselves as non-halachic or that reform Judaism is non-halachic because we don't recognize in an automatic fashion the authority of the halachic system that is traditional Jewish law we if we have a question of religious practice you know you can go to the book and find an answer but that answer does not automatically determine what we do that's the difference between us let's say and orthodox Jews where you know, finding an answer is simply a matter of finding the best interpretation of the law and applying it. For us, what the law says, what halakha says, may or may not have a bearing on our final decision, but other things will weigh in as well. And ultimately, we as individuals, we as local communities will make our own decisions. So because of that, we say, well, we don't recognize the authority of halakha, which is true enough. But let's let's back up a minute. If we're talking about Jewish religious practice in any authentically Jewish sense of that term, that is any sense of that term that we ourselves did not invent, but actually has roots in in history and in tradition. If we want to know what the ongoing historical Jewish tradition has to say about praxis, you know, the technical term for stuff we do, whether it be ritual practice or the way we organize our communities, the way we're supposed to achieve justice in the world, that sort of thing. If we want any Jewish teachings, want to access any Jewish substance or content on matters of practice, the only place we can look to, the only source we can look to is the halachic literature. Mm -hmm. Right, The tradition of Jewish law, that's where Judaism goes to conduct its arguments, and I use that term advisedly because the Talmud, of course, is a book filled with arguments. That's how it learns. That's where we go to argue out our understandings of what we're supposed to do as Jews in response to, you know, the covenant of Sinai, response to our sense of our Jewishness, however you want to define it theologically. Jewish practice is necessarily grounded in this collection of sources called halakha. There's nowhere else to go for that information. And then when you look to the reform movement to see exactly 
what our Jewish religious practice is, you'll find that there's a tremendous amount of innovation and creativity, new things happening all the time. But all of these things tend to follow a structure and they're based on a platform that is quite recognizably halachic in nature. We never abandoned the halacha. We abandoned its, I guess you would call it, its political authority, um, its power to make decisions for us, even if we don't like those decisions. But the material we use to make the decisions, the sources we turn to for guidance, they are halachic sources. And so if we're going to be authentic, that's true to ourselves, as well as to our Jewish roots, this is something we ought to study for ourselves and learn for ourselves. Yeah, so then by that definition, there's no such thing as non-halachic Judaism, including liberal Judaism, unless you're existing entirely outside of the rabbinic system, the halachic system. You know, if you think about the things that we do as Jews, as liberal Jews, I attend a synagogue, I light candles on Friday night, I make kiddush over wine. None of those practices exist in the Torah. They all are practices that are filtered through the lens of generations upon generations of rabbinic and halakhic discourse. So, I, yes, I agree with what you said. We may have abandoned this sense of the, the authority, the binding authority of the halakhic system, but we haven't abandoned the Jewish tradition, which is in some ways synonymous with, with halakha. Exactly. That's exactly it. That's a very good way to put it. So then that brings us to a project I know you're working on, which is the Freehoff Center for Progressive Halakha. Can you tell us about it? Yeah, it's the Freehoff Institute for Progressive Halakha. It, it, it was, uh, it, the institute is named after Rabbi Solomon B. Freehoff, who for many years was the great teacher of halakha to the reform movement of the reform movement. He wrote many, many responsa, which are rabbinic opinions, somewhat like judicial opinions, although the rabbi writes a responsum is, is not a judge in a case. They're more advisory in nature, but he wrote hundreds of these responsa, which uh, answer questions of Jewish practice, uh, drawing upon the halachic literature, the literature of Jewish law, but, but talking to a self-identified reform audience. Um, uh, and uh, rabbi Freehoff, uh, really, he wasn't the first reform rabbi to study halachic literature, but uh, his influence was so great that his uh, his student and his successor as rabbi at Rota Sholem Congregation in Pittsburgh, um, found, uh, Walter Jacob, Rabbi Walter Jacob, founded the uh, Freehoff Institute for Progressive Halacha way back in 1991. Mm -hmm as a way of perpetuating the work that uh, Rabbi Freehoff had begun. Um, the Freehoff Institute is committed to doing a number of things. It, on the one hand, it's an academic institute. It, it, it sponsors conferences, usually when reform rabbis or other reform organizations get together to meet, uh, conferences where we talk about questions or halachic subject matter. Right, I was um, I was honored to give a talk at one of those yes. a couple years ago. I and have been a member of the institute for uh, for a few for a few years so i think there's really good discourse going on there amongst at least amongst reform rabbis about about jewish law right so that's one of the things we do we 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 discourse in real time whether that's together in a room or over zoom as we have in the last couple of years 
Um, and hopefully getting back to real-time conferences uh, uh, very soon. Uh, in addition, we, we have a website now that is devoted, we're devoting it to a couple of things. Number one, we want it to become the clearinghouse for all non-Orthodox halachic writing. That is, there are places you can go on the web you know, if I got a question, you know, ask the rabbi kind of thing. There are a lot of orthodox sites in Hebrew and English you can go to. There are some non-orthodox, we sometimes call them liberal or progressive, non-orthodox, I guess would be the right way to, to you know, the most objective way to include that, to talk about this group. There are some of these non-orthodox sites as well, but they're scattered. We want to bring all of the, the, the material and all of these sites together and link them on our own site so that if you have a question about Jewish practice, Jewish law, that you want to look at from a non-Orthodox or liberal Jewish standpoint, you can come to our site and, and find the source, whether it be a reform response and something written by the American conservative movement or the Israeli Masorti movement um, uh, and uh, or wherever or by whomever, uh, you'll be able to find it on our site. In addition to being the clearinghouse for that, for all of this writing, um, we're trying to create content. We um, we want to be a place where you can find essays, shiurim, lessons uh, uh, in audio and, and in text form, uh, perhaps even in video form for, you know, the entire gamut of issues of Jewish religious practice. We, you know, we want to provide this material for the non-Orthodox Jewish community, those of us who though we are not orthodox, understand that halakha speaks to us and is a tool with which we can fashion authentically Jewish responses to the questions that uh, the questions that we have. And I think that language of authentically Jewish is really important. I think that we often step into a Jewish question thinking, well, here's what Judaism says, which in our minds is often the orthodox, but then here's what I do. And and what you're suggesting is that there is an authentic liberal Jewish approach to making Jewish decisions. It's not just there's a right way, but I'm not following it. That there's mm -hmm. actually, there actually are multiple right ways. And, and I, I'm actually really struck by the idea of the project of bringing together, say, reform, reconstructionist, conservative, various kinds of liberal halakhic writings, because if I want to know the conservative Jewish answer to whether I can drive a car on Shabbat, I can look that up, mm -hmm. right? But that might be a different answer. In fact, I know it is a different answer than what the reform movement have to say, has to say, because there's a different way of thinking. And yet they're both authentic, progressive Jewish ways to approach decision-making. Right. And they're both, you know, within this, this framework of progressive halakha, they're both rooted in the soil of the Jewish legal tradition. See, the another Jewish approach to answering the question might be, well, what do I think? In other words, I'm a Jew um, and I'm serious about this. So let me see what I think. And that becomes an authentic Jewish response for me. Well, maybe so, maybe so. But unless that response can be tested against the sources and traditions uh, that we find expressed in the halakhic literature, uh, then 
there is a real question about its Jewish authenticity. It can mean a lot to you as an individual or to me as an individual. But I'm, when I'm talking about authenticity in this regard, I'm talking about something else. I'm talking about its connection to the source of all Jewish practice, which is, which is the halakha. There are different ways of understanding what halakha has to say to us. And that's why we have an institute of progressive halakha to help bring our versions of this understanding to, uh, to people's attention. Um, and, you know, like I say, the work is, the work is fascinating and it's just beginning. I think the idea that there are multiple right answers, that there are multiple ways to solve this is actually a traditionally Jewish idea. If you look in the Talmud, the Talmud is built on the idea that there are different ways to answer this question. The, the Talmud is actually the record of the rabbis discussing the various answers to questions. And so I, what you're doing really is a continuation of what Jews have been doing now for 2000 years. That's right. There are arguments that should never have stopped. You know, that sometimes arguments stop. Sometimes we're all kind of convinced or persuaded that a particular answer is right and the other answers are not so good. But in other in other cases, well, we're not entirely convinced. You know, maybe we ought to keep talking about this because the sources which are the evidence that you bring in order to support your version of the right answer, the sources can be read in different ways. They 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 accommodate different meanings and interpretations. Maybe the other interpretations, the ones that we've been forgetting about, the ones we've rejected for many centuries, maybe those interpretations have something to say to us. Um, and, and we shouldn't lose sight of them. Uh, this fluid, we should not lose sight of this fluid and ongoing nature of halachic debate. Right. And maybe we have new information that might make us look at the sources differently. I actually, I listened to a daily Daf Yomi Talmud study podcast I was mentioning to you during our break. And this, the rabbi who is an Orthodox rabbi who hosts it, mentioned something recently about the possibility that maybe it's time to relook at the definition of electricity and whether electricity is fire. Of course, you know, famously, the, the, the acronym decided a hundred years ago that electricity yeah. is fire and therefore you cannot turn on lights on Shabbat. But here's an orthodox voice that's calling for that maybe we need to relook at that. Maybe we need to now knowing what we know today about electricity, bring back up the question of how to apply that situation to the traditional sources. Yeah, and there's no reason why they can't. There's no reason why Orthodox rabbis, Orthodox students of Talmud could not ask these questions again. Uh, it's, it's just that in Orthodoxy, a great premium is placed upon coming up with definitive answers. I mean, you know, you, you need the rules. You need rules to tell you what to do. You can't debate ad infinitum. You need to know, well, is it, is it fire or not? Can I turn the light on or, or not? Um, over on our side of the Jewish religious spectrum, we're less concerned with that final answer. We'll have different answers among ourselves, let alone between us and uh, Orthodox Jews. But for us, the important thing is the debate. It is the argument. Uh, and as long as we're engaged in that debate, that argument fueled by the texts and sources of a halachic tradition, then, then that's our insurance that the answers we're coming up with are authentic Jewish responses. I mean, they're part of uh, uh, they're they're part of Torah study that that is based upon literature that 
the Jews have always looked to for answers such as these. And that's actually very Talmudic because, as you know better than I do, the Talmud often doesn't come to a conclusion. It often lists or expresses the debate between the rabbis, but doesn't tell us the answer. So we have to look to a later code or response or <laughs> something like that to tell the answer because the Talmud is really here for the discussion. That's right. The word Talmud means learning, right? It, it doesn't mean decision-making. It's not a code. It's a uh, it's a, a book of resources for argument. Mm -hmm. So I know you're working on a book, which is on a related topic. Will you tell me a little bit about it? Yeah, the book is uh, tentatively titled Reading Reform Responsa. Um, uh, for many years, I was engaged in writing Reform Responsa. I was chair of the Responsa Committee of the Central Conference of American Rabbis for a number of years. Um, uh, and so, uh, but, but this book is about stepping back and taking a look at that kind of literature and asking questions like in, in the same way you would ask questions of any other kind of literature. What is this genre? What is this kind of writing? What's it about? How does it work? How does the author or the, how do the authors of this particular text want their audience to understand what they're doing? How are they speaking to that audience? How are they trying to persuade their audience because a responsum, which answers a question of Jewish practice and comes up with a solution, the responsum is going to try to persuade its audience that this is this answer is the best answer we've got. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, how does it do that? What rhetorical techniques does it use? How what kinds of proof does it cite besides simply citing Jewish texts? How does it want us to understand those texts? Uh, how does it understand us as the audience of, of this piece? What, what, what do the authors of this text seem to be thinking about us as the kind of people who would be open to this kind of argument? Um, there, there are lots of, uh, lots of interesting questions we can ask about how responsa work how they do their job, whether or not at the end of the day we agree with the answer that this particular rabbi or group of rabbis come, come up with, how did this argument of theirs get put together and how does it try to get its point across to us, the, uh, the audience that, uh, to whom it is speaking? Um, and, and that's what I'm working on. I'm gonna take a sample of certain number of reform responses and see whether we can pull them apart, ask those questions, and then try to pull them back together again. So again, it's about the process of, of the argumentation. How does this kind of Jewish legal discourse actually take shape? Right. I can't remember if we exactly defined responsa. So for mm -hmm. our audience who don't know responsa, in Hebrew, she'elot uchuvot, right? Is right, right. Questions yeah. and answers. Right, yeah. I mean, look, responsa is a Latin word, and it comes from a similar kind of writing in Roman law. But basically, somebody has a question about Jewish law that is too difficult for one reason or another. I don't know the answer to this. Uh, and may, maybe my local rabbi doesn't have an answer to this and the sorts of the people I can ask. Um, let me get the opinion of some scholar, or in this case, a committee of rabbis, and, and see what he, she, or they have to say about it. Uh, this, so a responsum comes back with an answer, and much more important than that, it comes back with an argument. 
Here is why we think this is the right answer. We know there were, there were other answers possible to this question, right? Because if this was a simple question that only had one good answer, you probably would have thought of it yourself. You never would have asked this question of a committee or some rabbi somewhere else. You ask this question because it's a hard question. It's got more than one possibly right answer. Okay, so here's the answer we think is right. Here's why. Here's why we think it's better than those other answers, um, which means to write a response, you got to show your work, as they used to say in school. Show me how you got this answer, which opens the writer and the writers up to criticism. Oh, yeah, well, I, I don't think I would have made this move. You, you're interpreting the source this way. I, I disagree about that. Well, yeah, okay. That's how it works. That process of argument, trying to answer questions that the Torah and the other written sources don't explicitly address. You know, we're making these texts, these old texts, answer very new questions. It's not a precise science, and that's what the argument is about. And to the extent that we come to a, a meeting of the minds on these issues, that's, that's how we know what Torah is saying to us today. We Jews really love to argue, don't we? Um, well, I would argue at that point, but uh, no, I, in general, I think you're right. I'll insert a bit um at that point. Yeah, there we go. I'm curious, in your, what I assume is about 30-something years of teaching rabbis, how have you seen the Jewish relationship or the Reformed Jewish relationship with Talmud and with Jewish law evolved? I think you know, making allowances for lots of individual variations. I mean, every single Reformed Jew is a universe unto themselves, right? But uh, if there is a general trend, um, I think it is a trend in which we, in which we have become more serious about making this literature part of our own, our own literature, bring it into our own wheelhouse, if you want to use that term. Um, the Talmud is not an orthodox book. It does not belong to orthodox Jews. Uh, it, it belongs to everybody. And, and I think we are more and more realizing that it is our book. We have reason to engage in the arguments ourselves. Um, uh, not because what we say is any better or any worse than what orthodox people say about it, but simply because it, the Talmud is the source of Jewish religious practice, full stop. And therefore, we have as much right and as much obligation to study it as to study any other part of the thing we call Torah. And, and, and I, I, I'm seeing Reformed Jews take this more and more seriously. They want to study Talmud. They want the classes in synagogues. They want to know what's in the Talmud. They're much more curious about it now, certainly, than they were when, when I started out so long ago. Well, I, I imagine that you may have had a little something to do with that, having now taught several generations of rabbis. I know that there's a lot about the way that I approach Judaism, the way that I approach Talmud and the halakhic tradition that I learned from you. And so I... I I think you've made a mark, I have to say. Oh, thank you. I, I hope you mean that as a compliment. Um, and uh, uh, thank you, if you do, yes. <laughs> I most certainly do. Can I ask you um, two last questions? Sure. 
These are the questions I ask every guest. I like to ask about ritual and I like to ask about books. So I'm curious if there's one Jewish ritual that you find particularly meaningful in your own Jewish life. And then the last question is, um, what book do we all need to read? In terms of, in terms of ritual, um, uh, I put on tefillin every weekday morning. I find that ritual particularly meaningful in large part because it is not always spiritually meaningful, right? But what I mean by that is I do something, if I do something every morning, I may not on the average Tuesday morning feel particularly connected to God and to matters of the spirit, but I get out of bed. It's time to daven shachri, to say the morning tefillah. Um, and I, I put on tefillin as a way of centering myself for that task, really binding myself in such a way that I separate myself from the rest of the world and focus upon a task, a, a mitzvah that I might not have done otherwise, but that I do because, well, it's morning and it's time to do this. I, I, I find a great deal of meaning in that, uh, in that sense of discipline. Hmm. Um, which um, tefillin bring to me. It speaks to the power of habit, I think, that when we perform these kinds of potentially mindful actions, sometimes they're mindless, but sometimes they have the potential for mindfulness, that it really, I think, helps us build an ongoing sense of, of connectedness or, or of wellness over time. And it, it, it actually reminds me of a midrash that I know you know, when the when the Jewish people are receiving Torah and they, they answer to God saying, Na we will do and we will hear. And the rabbis in the in in the rabbinic tradition say that the reason the doing comes before the hearing is because the well, maybe this is my interpretation of what the rabbis say, but I've always understood it to mean that hearing, which is understanding or meaning, can come out of doing. That if we perform these actions, then they may not be deeply spiritual or meaningful every time, but that out of performing them can come a sense of connectedness and a sense of meaning over time. Yes, I mean, we should never lose sight of the power of discipline to help us achieve the ends that we are trying to achieve. Discipline simply meaning habit, um, dedication uh, that is the product of thoughtful effort repeated every day, perhaps every week. Um, there's, there's something powerful to that, that uh, uh, when one, one engages in, in the practice that uh, uh, that you that you don't forget. Mm-hmm. And let's see, as as far as a single Jewish book that I would recommend, I'm going to stretch way way back for this one. I'm going to recommend a book that probably is not in print anymore, so it's not terribly helpful for me to recommend this. But if you can get a hold of a book called Ever Since Sinai by Professor Jacob Petuchowski. Mm-hmm. Let me spell that because it's a P-E-T-U-C-H-O-W-S-K-I, Petuchowski. Uh, Jacob, spelled with a K, J-A-K-O-B, was a teacher of mine at Hebrew Union College. 
uh, taught liturgy and taught theology, um, wrote a book ever since Sinai as a, as a, as a very accessible theology of liberal Judaism, reform Judaism, liberal Judaism. Um, the, because the great question is, how does a, a Jew who is not committed to the literal truth of every single word in Scripture, that means most of the people listening to this podcast, certainly me, uh, how does a Jew like us uh, understand Torah? How do we how do we live together in religious community and talk about God and talk to God through an agency called Torah when we don't believe that this thing called the Torah, these biblical books, let alone the rabbinic literature, is unerringly true? And one of the great images that Petachovsky leaves us with in that book is that you should think of Torah as a series of love letters between God and Israel. This is counterintuitive because there are large parts of the Torah that we don't imagine as love letters as anything but. But he says, no, think about it this way. God and Israel are meeting together. Call it Sinai in a place called Sinai. Let's and we're trying to communicate with each other. The literary record of that communication, the things that we have written down as impressions of our understanding of what God is telling us, the things we have written down that are our impressions of what God is commanding us are part of our attempt to understand what this relationship means. The kind of thing that when there used to be things like love letters, now we have texts and things like that. When people used to write love letters. They, what were they doing? They were trying to understand what the relationship was. They're back and forth, back and forth, defining the nature of this thing that they had together. Um, that's how we should understand Torah. We, when you look at love letters, you don't demand that they be absolutely accurate representations of factual and objective truth. Um, they're expressions of emotion, of, of devotion, of commitment, uh, of love, of love. And that's, he says, that's what Torah is, so that we can read Torah, learn it, learn about our relationship with God without making demands on the Torah that the book itself simply cannot meet. Um, and that's how you can come, come up with a liberal understanding of revelation, of, of scripture, of Torah, uh, of Judaism, uh, and everything kind of flows from that. So you get a hold of Ever Since Sinai by Jacob Petachowski. Yeah? It's not a long book. It's definitely worth the read. Brings us back to the idea of covenant, which is actually where we began, that relationship Indeed. with God. Uh, well, Dr. Mark Wachowski, I want to thank you for your time and your wisdom and for having a conversation with me today. It's been great. Well, thank you, uh, Rabbi Streifer. I, I really appreciate being, uh, being on the podcast, and um, it's been fun. Thank you. Again, my deep thanks to Dr. Mark Wachowski for engaging in this conversation with me. If you're interested in the Solomon Freehoff Institute of Progressive Halakha that he mentioned during our conversation, you can find it at freehoffinstitute.org. I'll put the link into the episode notes. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for sticking with us for this long, and I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to 7-Minute Torah. 
If you enjoyed this program, please leave a review or a comment, and please pass it on to a friend. You can also subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Have a great week.